I said in the early service, it was so good to have a father and, father and sons up here uh, doing the music. And, and afterwards, Jeff came up to me and he said, you know, a lot of people after you said that said, yeah, but many people came up to him and said, we couldn't tell which was the father and which was the sons. <laughs> no, it's a, a joy. Hey, today I have the, the joy and the privilege to bring to you one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, the historic account of David and Goliath. Everybody loves this story. There's so much to love in this story. You have a, 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 a powerful bully. He's oversized, he's arrogant, he's defiant. And you have an innocent young shepherd who's faithful and believes in God. And, and these two come against each other and, and everything in us knows that Goliath should win. He should win, he's got all the power, he's got all the armor. He has everything it would take to win. And yet David defeats him because of his faith in God. And so it gives us hope because we all face giants, right? We all face insurmountable things. And we, we wanna be David. We wanna be that little guy who can stand up to those things. You know, things like, like bullies or like sickness or loss or inability or, or just a poor upbringing, whatever we face, we face these giants and we want to be able to come at them like David, with faith. As I prepared for this this week, the thing that stood out the most is that this passage is far less about me and the giants that I face than it is about how this story, this historic account, fits into the overall scheme of the scriptures. And that through this, what we see here played out between David and Goliath is what's going on throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end, that there is a cosmic battle between the line of God's people and the world. And that as these two play out, they are us in a spiritual battle. And so this morning, as we look at this, we wanna, we wanna see the scripture for what it is and to know that with every historic account that we read in the Old Testament, it's Jesus of the New Testament who is the hero of each of those stories. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. And we're going to begin by looking in chapter 17, verse one of chapter 17. You may read up on the screen behind me if you, if you uh, are not looking at your Bibles. The Philistines gathered their troops for battle. They assembled at Soko in Judah. They encamped in Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelite army assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah where they had arranged their battle lines to fight against the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites on another with the valley between them. And here's what this looks like. So you have up here, I'm just gonna come over here. So the Philistines were encamped on this ridge from Azekah all the way down to Zoka, like that. And then the, the Israelites were on the ridge on the other side, and in between, right where it says battle site, that was the valley, and that width is about 100 yards, so about the width of a football field, and this is where the valley was, was a place that this battle is going to take place. What's significant about this is that the Philistines had made their way all the way into Judah. 
So remember, about 400 years before this, Joshua led the Israelites into the, into the land of Israel, into Canaan, and they had taken most of that land, and God had given them most of the land within that. The Philistines, however, by this point, had so encroached on the Israelites that they were all the way in Judah, and that's a significant thing. Let's, let's read on. Let's continue in verse four. This is the enemy's defense. Then a champion came out from the camp of the Philistines. His name was Goliath. He was from Gath. He was close to seven feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and was wearing scale body armor. This was one huge man. He's a big guy. So some of your Bibles will say six cubits. Some will say seven to nine feet. And that really has to do with how long the cubit was. We're not exactly sure at that time in history how long the cubit was. But he was a big boy. All right, and he had a lot of armor on. Now I wanna say, remind you that he was from Gath. If you remember back when we were looking at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we said there are five Philistine cities. One of those is Gath. So he was from one of those Philistines, Philistine cities. Now this isn't the first time that the Israelites had faced a giant. Do you remember back when God had taken the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And he, he led them through the desert on up to the Jordan River, and they were going to cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Before they did it, they sent 12 spies over there. And so 10 of those spies came back and said, the land is full of giants. There's no way we can do this. They're so big and they're so powerful, we will never be able to take the land. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, yes, they're right, the land is full of giants, but we have God. We can take this land. It's not going to be a problem. God is giving us the land. The giants have nothing to do with it. Well, sadly, Israel believed the 10. And so God said, well, then you're going to get what you want. And they got to spend 40 years in the shadow of these giants. They spent 40 years wandering around in the desert, not going into the land that God was about to give them because there were giants in the land. So here we are again, Israel facing a giant. And in fact, this giant, Goliath, is a descendant of the giants that were in the land because we're told earlier in scripture that the giants that were in the land, a lot of them settled in Gath. Okay, so Goliath is just a descendant of those same large race of people. So this is another test for Israel. The thing I want you to notice is these last three words here. Scale, body, armor. Goliath had armor on that was made in plates that looked like the scales of a snake. We're gonna come back to that, but hold on, hold on. But for now, let's look at his offense, and he certainly was offensive. Starting in verse eight, Goliath stood and called to Israel's troops. Why do you come out to prepare for battle? Am I not the Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose for yourself a man so he may come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and strike me down, we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and strike him down, you will become our servants and will serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy Israel's troops this day. Give me a man so we can fight each other. 
When Saul and all the Israelites heard these words of the Philistine, they were upset and very afraid. Then to verse 16, meanwhile, for 40 days, the Philistine approached every morning and evening and took his position. So Goliath comes out and he's calling for an all or nothing, one-on-one battle to the death. And what's behind this is that he knew that it was really the gods that were fighting. And do you remember way back in chapter five when the, the Ark of the Covenant of our God, of the Israelite God, was brought into the temple and set before the God of the Philistines. His name was Dagon. Do you remember that? So this was the same battle. This was a battle between the God of the Philistines and the God of Israel. And the idea behind this was that whichever man would win this battle had the stronger God because only the stronger God was going to make that man win. So, so we have this, this thing. And you notice that he, he said this for 40 days. 40 days he would come out Call this out to Israel, and Israel shuddered in fear. And we're supposed to be reminded of that, of the 40 years that Israel spent in the shadow of the giants back in the desert. 40 years and 40 days. So now, a change of scene. David. David. Young David. He was anointed king in the last chapter, but that just means he was anointed. He wasn't ready to be king yet. He would be king in several years later after Saul would die. But until then, David is a young man, and and in the last chapter, he was playing harp in David's courts, trying to ease, in Saul's courts, trying to ease his spirit. But while Saul took the men to the battlefield, David was not old enough to be on the battlefield yet. So he was back at home, tending his father's sheep. His father, Jesse, was concerned about David's three older brothers, and he said, David, I want you to go and take these supplies to your three older brothers and to their commanders. And so David did that. He, he took the supplies to them, and we pick up now in verse 20. So David got up early in the morning and entrusted the flock to someone else who would watch over it. After loading up, he went just as Jesse had instructed him. He arrived at the camp as the army was going out to the battle lines, shouting its battle cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up their battle lines opposite one another. Then verse 23, as David was speaking with his brothers, the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, was coming up from the battle lines of the Philistines. He spoke the way he usually did, and David heard it. When all the men of Israel saw this man, they retreated from his presence and were afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? He does so to defy Israel, but the king will make the man who can strike him down very wealthy. He will give him his daughter in marriage and he will strike, and he will make his father's house exempt from tax obligations in Israel. So David heard the defiance of Goliath. David heard the cowardice of the Israelites. King Saul, King Saul was afraid. So picture this situation. You have Goliath, the Philistine giant, coming out, challenging Israel, defying the Israelite army, defying Israel's God. Of all the people in Israel who should come out and fight, 
it's King Saul because he's the king. He should be the one defending the honor of Israel. He should be the one defending the honor of his God. And another reason why Saul should be fighting him is because Saul was Israel's giant. Do you remember? That's how Saul got his job as king. He was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. So we have the giant from, from Philistines and then the giant from Israel. They should have come out and been together. But there's one more reason why Saul should have been the one to go out there. Because of God. Because of God. You see, Saul forgot God. And he thought that this was going to be his battle. And he knew he could never do it. Goliath was too big, and his armor was too strong and impenetrable, and Saul couldn't do it. And so Saul forgot God. And when he forgot God, he forgot that God was stronger than the Egyptians. He forgot that God was stronger than the Amalekites, than the Ammonites. He forgot God. And so for us, when we put God in another place other than first, when we put him second or third or last, we forget how powerful God is. We forget how, how passionate he is about his own glory, and we forget how zealously he loves us. When we put God second or last, we forget these things about God. You see, and think about Saul. Saul was looking at the, thing, the, the situation very real. What he saw was physical, and he was right, wasn't he? I mean, Goliath really was too big for him. Goliath really would have overpowered him. In fact, Goliath would have overpowered any one man from Israel. Saul saw the situation accurately, accurately except for one thing. He didn't see the spiritual aspect. He only saw the physical but there's a spiritual fight going on here. There's a spiritual realm that he lost sight of. This is more about God defending or defeating evil forces and defending his people than it is about anything else. So brother and sister in Christ, I wanna say to you that, that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. We too have eyes that just see the physical. But there is a spiritual battle going on. And when, when we are in conflict with others, it is often a spiritual battle. Now I'm not talking about when we're in conflict with brothers and sisters in Christ in church. In fact, James in the New Testament says that that comes because of our own evil desires and our desire to get our own way. But I'm talking about when we are embattled against the world when we are fighting the forces of evil that are in the world. Paul says in the New Testament, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We cannot miss that there is a spiritual realm and a spiritual battle going on at all times. And as believers, we are a part of that. We are engaged in that in one level or, uh, or another. See, Saul didn't realize that. He didn't know that, and as a result, he was incapacitated. He couldn't lead. He couldn't make a decision. He couldn't fight. And if Israel's king wasn't going to do the fighting, then who would? Well, Saul had to come up with a plan. So he came up with this plan that he would make the person who defeated Goliath rich, 
he would give him his own daughter, I hope she was pretty, and he would make his family tax exempt. So Saul hears that there's a young man, in fact, the young man from his own court, who's walking around camp asking questions about what's going on, who heard Goliath, who saw the fear, and Saul summons David to himself. So now picture this tall, imposing, but defeated king talking to young David, a young shepherd boy. Let's read starting in 32. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged. Now think about this. David is saying this to the king. Don't let anyone be discouraged. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied to David, you aren't able to go against the Philistine and fight him. You're just a boy. He has been a warrior from his youth. David replied to Saul, your servant has been a shepherd of his father's flock. Whenever a lion or a bear would come and carry off a sheep from the flock, I would go out after it, strike it down, rescue the sheep from its mouth. If it rose up against me, I would grab it by its jaw, strike it, and kill it. Your servant has struck down both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them. And again, I want to remind you that that idea of this uncircumcised Philistine. He's saying he's not one of God's covenant people. God's covenant people have a special relationship with God. He's not one of them. So he says, he says, this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David went on to say, the Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will also deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Then Saul said to David, go, the Lord will be with you. So at this point, Saul tries to put his armor on David, and it's too big, it's too heavy, he can't wear it. And we don't know the answer to this, but I wonder if maybe Saul put his armor on David because he was hoping everybody would look and say, oh, there goes Saul, he's finally fighting the giant. We don't know that, we don't know that, but I wonder that. So David then goes out and approaches Goliath, Verse 42, when the Philistine looked carefully at David, he despised him, and he was only, for he was only a ruddy and handsome boy. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come after me with sticks? Because David had his shepherd's crook with him. Then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Jump to 45. But David replied to the Philistine, You are coming against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I am coming against you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel's armies, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This day I will give the corpses of the Philistine army to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land. Then all the land will realize that Israel has a God. And all this assembly will know that it is by the, not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will deliver you into our hands." And you know what happened. David reaches in his bag, he puts a stone in his sling, he starts slinging the stone, and the stone goes and lands right in the forehead of Goliath, right where the armor wasn't. And it crushes Goliath's head. So I want to just remind you what happened way back 
at the beginning of 1 Samuel when the ark of God came before Dagon. Remember the next morning, how was Dagon positioned? Face down, on his face. Well, that's exactly what happens to Goliath. Goliath falls face down. And you remember, they put Dagon back up. And the second day he was in front of the, the Ark of Covenant, the next morning they found Dagon how? Face down and his head fell off. David grabs a sword, the sword of Goliath, because he didn't have his own, and he chops off Goliath's head. This is a battle of the gods. This is a battle between the God of Israel, the true God, and a false God. David had been anointed king in the last chapter, and here he is appointed as the champion of Israel. He really is the new Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb, remember they said, we can take the giants because God is giving the land to us. And David just repeated that. We can take this giant because God is in charge here. And so David faced his time of testing, and it was against a giant. So I want to tie this account to the rest of scripture now. So I'm gonna do some jumping around, and I need you to follow me. So we're gonna back up a little bit, just a few chapters to chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. In chapter 11, Saul was crowned king. And he came against Nahash. Nahash was the king of the Ammonites. Now why this is important is because Nahash the king was oppressing Israel and threatening them. And this was Saul's first act as king to come against Nahash. The word Nahash literally means snake. So Saul is coming against a snake and by the spirit of God that was in him, he defeats the snake. Now, in chapter 17, David is against a man who's dressed in armor with what? Scales. This man is the the new representation of the snake. He's the new representation of a false god. And David, by the power of God and by his faith in God, is able to slay this, this giant, this snake as well. David also explained, and we read this, that, that he was able to, to subdue the wild beasts that would come against the sheep, his father's sheep that he was watching. And so David just said that this snake is just one of the other beasts. In fact, it's beautiful because in in the passage, it really says that God rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and it says, and he will rescue me from the paw of Goliath. It's the same word. You see, to David, he was just another one of these beasts. Now I'm gonna back way up, way, way up, all the way to the beginning, to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam in the garden was given rule over the beasts of the earth. He had the authority to rule the beasts of the earth and to subdue the earth and to to wield its power. He had that authority to do that. When the snake came against Adam, Adam relinquished his authority and he gave his authority over to the snake, to Satan, to the serpent. And now the serpent is the one who has the authority to rule the earth. And he rules it with his weapon, death. That's his main weapon. 
So we have Adam, who should have subdued the snake and was given the authority to subdue the snake, couldn't do it, wouldn't do it, chose not to do it. And now the snake has that authority. When that happened, God came and said to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, the seed of Satan, and her offspring, the seed of the woman. And he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So when we have Goliath here, threatening Israel with death, threatening Israel with annihilation. He is just the latest representation of that original snake, threatening God's people with destruction. And unlike Adam, who feared the power of the snake, and unlike Israel, whose fear defeated them before the giants, David was able to slay this giant. David finally did that. So what's so important about all this is that it all prefigures Christ. So about a thousand years after after David, Jesus shows up on the scene. He is anointed as the son of God. He is the designated king He's the shepherd of his father's sheep, just like David. And at the beginning of his ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness before the snake, before Satan, who for 40 days tempted him. The Gospel of Mark tells us that while Jesus was in the wilderness, that there were wild beasts around him as well. And for 40 days, he was being tempted with the same snake that keeps showing up in Scripture. And for 40 days, Jesus resisted that temptation and he was able to do it. You see, this is David and Goliath all over again. This is Israel in the desert all over again. And Jesus did it because he is the true son of Adam, the true son of David, the true son of Israel. He is the true son of God. And it's because of that that he was able to do this. Now Jesus would one more time at least faced this same snake when he went to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, this enemy of ours rejoiced and thought, finally, the authority that I stole from Adam, I can have it and keep it and it's mine forever. No more enemy to to stop me. But Jesus rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he crushed the head of the serpent, just like the prophecy back then. And that serpent has lost its power. Jesus came to do what Adam could never do. He came to do what Saul couldn't do, and even what David eventually is gonna fall to the snake as well, isn't he? Jesus came and was able to do what they could not do, and what you and I cannot do. That's why he came into the world. And so today is Father's Day. And somehow I have to tie this message in with Father's Day, right? Ah, it's easy. It's easy because at the end of this passage, Saul remembers that he had promised wealth, his daughter, and tax exemption to whoever did this. So he comes up to David and he said, David, whose son are you? Whose son are you? In other words, 
Who is your father? What a great question for Father's Day. In fact, it's really the most important question we can ask today. Because if God isn't your father, it's because you haven't received his son as your savior. You see, because Adam rejected the fatherhood of God way back then, we are all born as orphans. Yes, we have physical parents, but we do not have God as our father. It's only when we are put in Christ, the son of God, that we become children of God. And the way we get in Christ is to put our faith and trust in his work on the cross because he died for your sins and for mine. And if God isn't your father, then it means that he is not your father. And who is your father then? You know, there are only two competing forces in this world. There's the seed of the woman, and there's the seed of Satan. There's not a third option. There's, there are only two forces in this world. The child of God, or the child of the enemy. No third, no third option. Jesus said this, he said, he said, narrow is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few may find it. But wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to death and destruction and many will enter through it. There's no third option. It's either the narrow gate or the wide gate. And so men, men, I want to bring this especially to you. Men, we are in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle. And so many of us are Saul-minded. We are looking at the physical and seeing only this. And we think, like Saul, that we can fight it with the armor of this world. That if I'm big enough, if I'm strong enough, if I'm tough enough, I, I can overcome but men, we've got to start fighting the right enemy and fighting the right battle. The battle is not here. The battle is a spiritual battle. So let's stop fighting our wives and let's fight the enemy instead. Let's stop fighting our children or whoever else and start fighting the enemy instead. Listen to how the Bible describes our enemy. He says he's the serpent of old. He is the evil one. He's the ruler of demons, the father of lies, a murderer, an adversary. He is a roaring lion, a deceiver, and the accuser of God's people. We have a real enemy, men. This is a real enemy, and he is powerful, and he's too powerful for you and me. We cannot overcome this enemy without Christ. Only through Jesus can we fight. And it's when we, were, we are in Jesus that we can experience the resistance to this enemy that Jesus did. Because when we're in Jesus, we're protected by him. So today is really a call to fight. It's a call to fight a spiritual battle, men, that we are in. And when Jesus fought that spiritual battle over in, in the wilderness for 40 days, he used the word of God to fight it. Men, we've got to get in the word of God. We want to be men of the word, but you can't be a man of the word unless you're a man in the word. 
And if you're not in the word, you cannot expect any victory spiritually. It is only here. This is the only place you're going to find it. And you know, I know, yeah, you're busy. We're all busy. We all work 10, 12 hours a day. We have families and we watch football and we watch basketball and baseball and everything. What about this? When are you going to take time for this? This is the most important thing you will do. And this, when you spend time in this, it will make you do your work better and make you do your husbanding better and your parenting better. This is the word of God. This is the power of God. This is the weapon that God has given us. And he's given us prayer. And man, we need to spend less time talking about our problems, less time thinking about our problems, and more time on our knees praying about our problems, praying about the battles that we are in. We have a real enemy, and he is powerful. But who is your father? Believer, it's God. This enemy means nothing if God is your father. We have to take this seriously, and I, and I mean this. If God is your father, why are so many of us dabbling in the enemy camp? If God is your father, why are so many of us shaking with fear in the face of this enemy? And if God is our father, why are we waiting around for somebody else to take up the battle? Men, it's up to you and me. We are the ones who have what we need because we are in Christ. And, and I get it, we've, we've all had fathers. And you know, for some of us, you know, our fathers lived well and loved well. For some of us, they didn't love well, they, they didn't live well, they, they, they acted out of their wounds and they wounded us. I get that. But Christian brother, you have a heavenly father. It doesn't matter what your father is like. You have a heavenly father who loves you with a love that will never stop. You have a heavenly father who has an authority over every enemy of yours. You have a heavenly father who sent his son to be the first among many brothers, the Bible calls Jesus. The first among many brothers. He sent Jesus as that firstborn. So men, if you are God's son, it's time to engage. It's time to engage. I'm gonna ask you to do something a little unusual now. I'm gonna ask all of the men to come down into the mosh pit here. <laughs> Fill up, men, just come on down. All men, please come on down. Ladies, you can stand, or ladies, children, whatever, you can stand where you're at. Men, all come down. Please come down. And when you come down, as you men are coming down, I'd like you to take your hand and put your hand on the shoulder of somebody near you. And fill in, fill in. we can't be single file, guys. You're gonna have to make a crowd, so come right here into the middle. Come on in. Come on, fill it in, men, fill it in. And we'll wait for anybody. There's no rush here, guys. There is no rush. Come on down. No, no, don't carry me. Nobody's going to carry me across the crowd. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Come on in, men. Men. Men, we... This is a good-looking group, isn't it? Man. <laughs> And men, you know that if you're married here, you're married to a daughter of a king, right? And she is pretty, right? She is pretty. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Craig. Men, we are called to something very powerful here. 
and I, I want to speak a blessing over you. And women, I want you to, to, to pray with me as I speak this over the men. Men, may you live as men who have God as their father. May Christ the firstborn have first place in your life. May the authority that Jesus has be your authority. Men be fully submitted to our Lord, enjoying his abiding presence, enjoying his love, enjoying the relationship you have with him and enjoying the complete victory that he has given to you over temptation. Men, may you know the power over the beast and the power against the snake who continues to wield his deceit among us. Men, seek Christ and his kingdom first that he would be foremost in your mind before anything else, that Jesus Christ would be the premier for you. Oh, may the Lord rebuild in you the image that our first father, Adam, broke so that you would begin to reflect the father as he is meant to be and as his true son. And may you regain what Adam lost and men no longer, no longer be defined by your own heart or by what the enemy says or by what anybody else says, but may you be defined as Christ defines you, as a, a man of God, a friend of God, loved by God, a warrior, and a son of the Heavenly Father. Amen. And go out in the power and the authority that Jesus has given us. Amen.